0: So we are in chapter 14 of Revelation, and we're going to read through verses 8 through 13 this morning. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, He himself shall also drink of the wine, the wine rather, of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who kept the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works, follow them. Lord, we are so grateful for your word, especially in this day when it comforts us, Lord, to know that you are in control. It comforts us, Lord, to know how this all ends. And, Lord, we are so blessed to be living in a time such as this, to see so many of the things that you have predicted will come true in your word, Lord, seeing them unfolding right before our very eyes. It is truly amazing to see the shadows of the things to come. Lord, how blessed are we to know that the real thing is not very far behind. So, Lord, go before us this morning as we dig into your word. Help us to understand it, and, Lord, more importantly, help us to live it. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is one of those messages that have to come with a a warning before we dig into it. What you're going to hear this morning is not going to be very edifying. It's not going to be very pleasant um, because it contains a warning. And for some, it's a last warning. It's a warning to repent before it's too late. There's a sin that cannot be forgiven, and that is rejecting Jesus as Lord and Savior and dying in your sin. And the Bible's filled with warnings as to what happens to those who die in their sin. The book of Revelation alone addresses an entire generation who's going to be alive during the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile. And it warns them not only what's going to happen, what they can expect during the tribulation, but it warns them that time is running out to repent. It's getting closer and closer and closer to that day of judgment when the Lord Jesus returns. And in a sense, all who are hearing this message this morning, if you've not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if you haven't surrendered your will to him, time's running out for you as well. As for many of us, have more time behind us than we do in front of us. It's just a nice way of saying we're getting old. Time to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus is running out for so many. You know, I I can't tell you, it's, it's heartbreaking the amount of young men in their 40s and 50s that I've seen on Facebook, people that I know around the country who have died. Either they've died or their family members have died recently, suddenly some of them. So time truly is of the essence for all of us for the people alive during the tribulation there is a dire warning issued a warning that says if you step over this line you know what the difference between sin and transgression is a transgression is where the lord would draw a line in the sand and you just step over and say what are you going to do now lord you're pretty brave if that's if that's what you do but that's the difference that line in this case is the worship of the beast and his image, and the taking of the mark of the beast. If you do this, if you do this, there is no coming back from that. There is no amount of repentance that will bring forgiveness for this transgression. There's no mercy. There's no grace anymore. There's only judgment and consequence for your choice. And believe me, this is your choice. So God gives the inhabitants of the earth one last chance to repent and turn to him or else suffer the consequences. It's not a very uplifting and encouraging message, is it, this morning? If you came here looking to feel good, this is not going to be the hour for that. You know, I've been told by people that I I like to scare people into heaven. Listen. We teach the word of God here. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And, and I'm not here to appease your delicate senses, and, and I apologize ahead of time for that, but we're just not it if that's what you're looking for. If you're looking to have your ears tickled, I'm not an ear tickler. This message that the angel delivers to the people of the earth at this time is a deadly serious message. Repent before it's too late. Because the consequences of not repenting, of not heeding that message, are Horrific and we're going to learn about that in a few moments here. So let's dig in and see what those consequences are. Let's look again at verse 8. And another angel followed saying, "Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication." So John sees another angel And we all know, because we're all Bible scholars here, that that word in the Greek, another, means is alos, and it means another of the same kind. So there's an angel flying around who's preaching the everlasting gospel to every tribe, every nation, and every tongue around the world. And this angel is another angel like that angel, only this angel's message is much different than the other angels. This is a dire warning. This is a last-chance message that the world will have one last chance to, to submit to Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins before it's everlasting too late. You know, the world believes that they can still put their trust in the world system. They can still rebuild and become stronger because there's so much devastation on the earth at this time. And you can just hear the message of the leaders around the world at this time, we'll rebuild. We'll rebuild stronger. We'll get through this together. You can hear it because we hear it every day now, right? And they're going to find out as the angel delivers this message that this world system that they've put their faith and hope and trust in has fallen. And by saying it twice, the angel's putting an emphasis on it. And he's saying, in fact, Babylon is completely and totally destroyed. So At this point in the book of Revelation, at this point in the tribulation, I should say, that has not happened yet, but it is as good as done. At this point, it's just a warning. Not to put your faith and hope and trust in a world system that's going to be destroyed. Boy, isn't that a very timely message for us today? Don't put your hope in this country. Don't put your hope in our state or in our leaders, both here and around the world. We need to remind ourselves constantly that the United States of America is not prominently mentioned in Bible prophecy. Now, some believe that we are mentioned briefly as the young lines of Tarshish, but that may even be a stretch. And even if it is us, we are just standing back as observers complaining about what's going on, not involved in it. Nations like Israel and Russia and China and Iran and Turkey, for example, are mentioned in the end times prophecies, but not the current superpower of the world. You got to come to wonder why why that's a why that happens. There's a lot of scenarios, like a civil war or civil unrest, a revolution. Both of those things have happened in our country before. The conditions that exist in this country after this election seems to make that possibility of civil unrest, of an outright civil war, very likely. In either case, America would find its superpower status greatly affected by a civil war or revolution in this country. Another scenario is that our military becomes so weakened from budget cuts and reductions in force to the point where we can no longer render aid to any of our allies, we can't even barely protect ourselves. Another scenario is being attacked by an EMP or an electromagnetic pulse. Now, that was floating around the prophetic community for a few years. You don't hear much about it anymore, but a device like that detonated over central United States could render us useless. We're back, we plunge us back into the 18th century. There's no technology, no lights, no nothing. My grandkids would go crazy without an iPad. I'll tell you that right now. I'm glad they're in New Jersey. Or it could be from a natural disaster. There's been talk, especially recently, of, of Yellowstone Park and the a volcanic eruption there and how that would spread across most of the United States. Listen, there's several scenarios that can happen. Which one or none of the above is completely up to God, right? But the scenario, the scenario that I'm hoping for the most, the one that I love to think about, my favorite scenario is the rapture of thousands of Christians from this country that weakens us to the point where we are no longer a superpower, amen? But one thing is for certain. If you have placed your hope and trust in this country, in our government, or in our military, it does not have a bright future. And the point of all of this is we cannot put our faith and hope and trust in a country or in a world system because the world is dying. This world is dying. You know, the world believes that a reset will bring this world into a unified global economic standing. That everyone in the world will then have an equity in the global economy so that we can all get to the same place at the same time. Or all get to the same place. Anyway, some of us might get there a little behind one another, but we'll all eventually get to the same place. We're going to talk about that very soon in the Convergence of Prophecy update, which we haven't done in a while, but it is a very, very interesting subject. If you haven't heard of the Great Reset, do a little research. It's pretty interesting. But no matter what the world believes, the world system of government, the finances, all of it is going to fall. It is as good as done. The only hope that we have, the only person we could put our trust in is the one who will never fail, who will never fall, and that's Christ Jesus. Now to get back to Babylon, this name has been associated prophetically with the literal city of Babylon. It's referred to as the religious system led by the false prophet. It's referred to as the political system that propels the false prophet and the Antichrist to power. It could also be referred to as the actual place the modern-day city of or country of Iraq. Babylon encompasses, when we talk about Babylon, it encompasses all of those areas. It identifies a worldwide political, economic, and religious empire of the Antichrist. And we're going to look at Babylon in a lot more detail when we get to Revelation 17. But Babylon, the angel says, has made the nations intoxicated. It has seduced them with the false religion. They've committed spiritual fornication with her, and that has led, as it always does, to literal immorality. Look at verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand. So here's part of the warning now the angel gives. It's a dire warning. There's horrific consequences associated with this warning. What amazes me is the fact that God's still warning people at this point. It shows us God's heart, his desire that none perish, that none spend eternity in hell. That's his heart. But sadly, it's not the heart or desire of many who are left. Do not, do not take the mark of the beast. Do not be seduced into worshiping this beast or his image. This is the dire warning. And I want you to consider the immense social and economic pressures that will be upon those who are left to take the mark of the beast. Consider the level of deception that exists at this time on the earth. This beast was apparently killed and rose again. That's a pretty convincing deception, isn't it? That's pretty hard to look away from or to ignore. But those who don't know who the, true, who the Antichrist truly is will fall for this deception. Consider the fear that's associated with not worshiping the beast or his image. And the penalty for not falling prostrate on the ground, worshiping this image. The penalty is death. And when you consider all that the inhabitants of the earth will be subjected to at this time, it is an amazing act of faith to not take the mark of the beast or to worship his image. And what that will mean for those who heed this warning is that they will become an outcast in society. It'll mean certain starvation as you can't buy or sell. It'll mean not having a roof over your head, which means you're going to be subjected to the elements. It'll mean suffering physical pain and abuse at the hands of the followers of the Antichrist. It'll mean suffering torment, but only for a season. It'll be nothing compared to the suffering and torment of those who take the mark of the beast and worship his image. Look at verses 10 and 11. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. So if anyone worships the beast or his image and receives this mark, They will suffer those consequences. That word consequence is not a very popular word today, is it? Nobody wants to suffer the consequences of what they do. Nobody wants to suffer the consequences of their actions. You know, I remember when I was young, the consequences for me doing something stupid was my father and his belt. Now today, some children grow up never knowing the consequences for them, for their bad actions never knowing what it's like to lose privileges or experience discipline for their bad behavior. And we see the results of that attitude of entitlement all across the world on the streets of every country. And more and more young people feel entitled to everything without doing nothing to earn it. You know, growing up, the only thing my bad behavior entitled me to was an encounter with my father's belt. That was it. Now. Listen, many parents would call that abuse today. You know what I call that? I call it a lesson in respect. Because I grew up respecting other people and respecting their property. So I thank God that my father didn't spare the rod. But I digress. If anyone takes this mark, if anyone takes the mark of the beast or worships the beast in his image, they will suffer these consequences. They're going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength. Now, this is a reference to what they used to do with the wine. They used to dilute it with water, much like they do the gospel message today. But this wrath is going to be poured out undiluted. It's going to be vengeance unmixed with any trace of mercy. The Psalms say, for a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of his Certainly, all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink its dregs. Psalm 75, verse 8. Jesus took the full wrath of God for us on the cross. Those who are covered by the blood of Christ will not, will not experience the wrath of God. Those who are left behind after the rapture. Who are covered by the blood of Christ will not experience the wrath of God. However, they will experience the wrath of the Antichrist and his followers. For those who continue to reject Jesus Christ as Lord and worship the beast in his image and take his mark, the full strength of God's wrath will be poured out upon them. I didn't say this. This is right here in the Bible. Don't shoot the messenger. There's gonna, they're going to be tormented with fire and brimstone. You know, I'm sorry that I even researched that word, brimstone. It's not a word we hear very often, is it? And the more I researched it, the scarier it became. Brimstone is a burning sulfur that burns blue, as it's, and it's often associated with molten rocks, the molten rocks that come up out of a lava flow. This brimstone keeps a fire burning for a long period of time. It's been described as having a sticky property to it, so that when it burns, it almost melts like wax. If you get this on your skin, it would stick to your skin as it melted and burned you. So that's how awful this stuff is. God sent fire and brimstone to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah as a form of judgment. Genesis 19, verses 24 through 25 tells us, "...and the Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord of heaven." And he overthrew those cities and all the surrounding area and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So Sodom and Gomorrah were completely destroyed. And if you were to go to those sites today where they believe those cities stood, you would still find sulfur stones there. And you could still pick them up and light them with a match and they will still burn. God is going to send those who are overtly sinning like those in Sodom and Gomorrah, those who do not consider that there even is a God, those who believe that there is no judgment or consequence for our sin, to a place where there will be fire that is kept burning by brimstone forever and ever. Not a very pleasant thought, is it? Make no mistake about it. What we're talking about is hell. What we're reading about here is the torment of hell. And... I know that's, not a, I, that's probably as unpopular a word as consequence today. There's going to be a constant, ceaseless, unbearable torment of fires in hell forever and ever. I don't want to sugarcoat that. I, as horrific as it is, I want it to sink in for those who do not know Jesus as long, Lord and Savior. Because one of the greatest lies the enemy has put upon the people of this earth, and, and even Christians, is that there is no hell. Many people believe, they don't believe in hell. They believe that once you die, you just lay down on the ground, you pull the dirt up over you, and you're done. That's it. You cease to exist. You cease to have any consciousness. And that sounds peaceful, doesn't it? There's a peace that that comes when you think about that. Until you're jolted out of the sleep of death and you find yourself standing before the Lord Jesus Christ at the white throne of judgment. At that point, that lie that you believe that there is no hell will become a reality to you as you f- realize, horrifically realize, that there is a judgment, that there is a place called hell. And without your without Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that is where you are going. But if you read the Word of God, Jesus speaks more about the dangers of going to hell than he does of the blessings of going to heaven. Why? Because he knows how horrendous the consequences of going to hell are it's a place of darkness it's a place where the worm never dies and the fires never are quenched it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth not for a season not until god changes his mind it's forever for all eternity forever and ever as the angel says jesus spoke of hell 11 times in the gospel three of those times we're in the Gospel of Mark. I want to read that to you. Mark chapter 9, verses 43-47. through 47. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better if you enter into life maimed rather than having two hands, to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better that you enter life lame, rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. How many times has Jesus said the fire is not quenched so far? And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hell fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus puts a lot of emphasis on this, doesn't he? And I think he's trying, he's getting his point across. You get the point? Jesus warns us. Now, he's not literally looking for us to chop off our legs and our arms and our, our eyes, because there'd be a lot of one-legged, one-armed, one-eyed people running around. But he's telling us: do whatever it takes to avoid going to hell. That's how deadly serious it is. Do whatever it takes to avoid that. One commentator wrote, Hell, that is worse than death, darker than darkness and deeper than any abyss. Hell is a place with more wailing and gnashing of teeth than any single descriptor could ever portray. Its symbolic descriptors bring us to a place beyond the limits of our language, to a place far worse than we could ever imagine. And you know, just thinking about this today, how much of an urgency do you have to share the good news, the gospel message? to those around us, knowing what they face. And I think, you know, I asked a pastor friend of mine one time, why do you think Christians don't share their faith more often? And he, without missing a beat, he said, because I don't think most Christians believe in hell. If we truly believe that there was a place as real as hell, if we truly believe the words of Jesus, then I think we'd share the gospel message even more, with our, especially with our loved ones. And if you thought hell wasn't bad enough, the worm that Jesus speaks of makes it even more horrifying. In ancient Jerusalem, there was a garbage dump just outside the city called Gehana. It's a place that they used to illustrate hell as a ceaseless place of agony. In Jesus' day, it was a place burning with constant fires that would consume the waste that was thrown in there. And, it, and they went from Everyday waste of the people just throwing their garbage in there to animal carcasses, even the bodies of convicted killers. That word worm means a grub or a maggot. And you would expect to find maggots in a garbage dump, wouldn't you? The difference here is that this maggot Jesus speaks of will not die. The thought of eternal torment likened to maggots eating away, and I'm sorry, I'm going to ruin your breakfast now, At a rotting corpse is not a very pleasant thought. Now, that doesn't mean that these are literal worms, because these worms live forever. Jesus is using this to to teach us about the unending suffering in hell. The worm never stops causing torment. But notice something very important that Jesus said. That worm is personal. It's their worm. Isaiah 66:24 and Mark 9:44 9, 928 rather 48 rather says it's their worm to identify each worm's owner it's a personal thing meaning that the source of this torment is reserved for each individual person in hell now some bible scholars believe this worm refers to a man's conscience suggesting that those in hell are completely cut off from god and from for all eternity and exist with a nagging, guilty conscience like a persistent worm that gnaws away at its victim with remorse that can never be put to rest. Being in a dark place with a darkness so thick that you can feel it, separated from everyone else, especially the love of God, where there's no mercy, nothing but intense flames and and the toxic smell of sulfur, you're left thinking to yourself, hell is real. And there's no way out of this place. I should have listened to that warning. You know, gone are the days of the fire and brimstone preachers that would stand up here and tell everybody they were going to hell. Those days are gone. Maybe they should come back. This is why Jesus was so adamant about doing whatever it takes to avoid ever going to this place. Now bear in mind, Jesus wants no one no one to wind up in hell. And here's another thing we need to bear in mind. Jesus will never send anyone to hell. If you wind up in hell, it is because you completely and totally ignored the warnings as just as they did in the days of Noah. And you crossed that line in the sand that God warned you about crossing. Do not take the image of the beast. Do not take the mark. Do not worship him. By crossing over that line, Even in our lives today, by crossing over that line, by refusing to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're saying to God, I don't want to follow you. There's only two choices in this life. You either follow God or you follow Satan. There is nothing in between. You're either for God or you're of Satan. There's nothing nothing else. You're saying by saying that your word, your warning, mean nothing to me. I'm just going to do what I want to do anyway. Listen closely. If you are following the beast or Satan, their destiny is hell. That's where they're going, the lake of fire. And if that's who you're following, that is your destiny as well. Hell is very real, as we've learned this morning. It's a very scary place. And if I were you, I would take the warning of Jesus and this angel very, very seriously and do whatever it took to avoid ever winding up there. And what that takes is you surrendering, and your life to him, and submitting your will to Jesus Christ as Lord. Amen? Well, nobody left, so I guess it's good. Still with me? It gets better. Look at verse 12. Listen, if you're convicted, if you're concerned, good, good. It means the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So through all the pain and suffering during this time of the tribulation, all the pain and suffering that the saints, the the tribulation saints are going through, those who come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior will persevere. And they'll, they'll, they'll choose this temporary suffering on this earth to avoid and avoid, rather, worshiping the beast and taking his mark. And they're able to persevere through this because they've placed their faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ. They believe in Jesus as Savior. They've turned away from the evil of this world and turned to Jesus. A little late, but they've still done it. The most important word here, the most important word, I think, in our English language is the word believe. If you're not a believer, you've no doubt had someone ask you if you believe in Jesus Christ at some point in your life. Believe, faith, righteousness are synonymous with each other in the Bible. When we look at the book of Genesis, Noah believed. Noah had faith, and God accounted to him as righteousness. We read about Abraham. Abraham believed. Abraham had faith, and God accounted it to him as righteousness. What does that mean? It means that because of their faith, because they believed that God considered them righteous in his eyes. And the fact that God considered them righteous in his eyes meant that they were going to heaven. Psalm 118.20 says, This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. Jesus told of a time when these will go away into eternal punishment, the right, but the righteous into eternal life, Matthew 25.46. So the reason becomes very clear as why it's important to have righteousness. Only the righteous will enter heaven. It's not our own righteousness, because the Bible tells us that our righteousness is like what? A filthy rag. Meaning it's not, meaning it's, it's not pure. It's not undefiled. It's a filthy rag. But those covered by the righteousness of Jesus will enter heaven, as Paul wrote. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And as we talked about last week, the righteousness of Jesus, who is, was the only one pure and undefiled by sin, is transferred to those who believe, to those who have faith. And our sin is transferred to Jesus, where where it's put to death on the cross with him. And because of that divine transaction, God now considers those who believe, those who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, as being righteous. So how does that come about? It comes about because we all talk about something called getting saved, right? That's our mission. We go out, we want to save everybody. We We want you to get saved. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. And their response to him was very simple. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's that word believe again. Believe and you will be saved. Saved from what? Here's where that very depressing teaching I just gave on hell comes in. You're saved from the fire and brimstone. You're saved from the worm that doesn't die, from the constant torment of the flames. You're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from the horrors of hell. That's what you're saved from. Jesus took the full, undiluted wrath of God. He bore our sins on the cross, and in so doing, he paid the wages of our sin, which is death, and he left us debt-free. He left our slate wiped clean, and not only did he wipe our slate clean, he then imputed or gave us his righteousness. And those who believe are saved from from ever experiencing the wrath of God the sentence of hell. Amen? Look at verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their work follow them. Death for the saints is a blessing as it is for all who believe. Paul showed us just how much he struggled with either staying here on this earth or going home to be with his Lord. He wrote to the Philippians, he said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So as long as the Lord had ministry for Paul here on this earth, he would stay but he much rather be in heaven with Jesus. He preferred to be with Jesus. Paul never had an earthly perspective, did he? Paul had a heavenly perspective. He lived on this earth, as we all do, but his body, his heart, his mind, all of that was in heaven. That's where he wanted to be. Paul would later write to the Colossians, Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on the earth. Now, we as believers are to also have a heavenly perspective in this life. There's nothing wrong with being so heavily minded that you are no earthly good. You know, for many Christians today, they've become so earthly minded, they are not of any heavenly good. There's nothing wrong with walking around with your head in the heavens with your feet on the ground. Just be careful where you're walking. I believe that when we have our minds focused on the things above, it's what helps us get through the trials and the tribulations of this earth. Amen? These saints are blessed. They're blessed because how they lived for Christ in the world that not only rejected Christ, but also rejected them. They're blessed because of how they died. They died in Christ and will never be separated from him forever and ever. And then the Holy Spirit speaks. It's not often in the Bible that we see a passage of Scripture that says the Holy Spirit speaks, is it? So this is pretty special. And he says, yes, yes, in answer, in agreement to the voice that says they are blessed in their death because they now have rest from their labor, from that exhausting work of staying true to God and avoiding the evil that's all around them. Even for us here and now on this earth today, without the evils of the tribulation, to, to stumble us. Staying true to God's word is difficult at times, isn't it? There may be times when in your life where you've thought it would be easier just to go along with the rest of the world. But it's that relationship that we've established with Jesus over the years, forged by his word, that keeps us faithful to the Lord and keeps us faithful to his word. Amen. Listen, when, the things, when things in this world become too much, when they become overwhelming, remember these words, come to me all who are weary and are burdened and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. And this is absolutely one of my favorite all-time passages of scripture. I used to read it to Dina when she was sick all the time. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2. There is rest now on this earth for the weary, for those who are threatened by the trials of this life. There is a rest in Jesus. But there's a promise of a more permanent rest forever Endeavor One day, that reward those who persevere who remain faithful that reward is a rest in heaven what a difference between those who choose hell over heaven for them there will never be any rest there will never be any peace there will never be any comfort but for those who are in heaven for those who choose Christ over everything else they will have rest from the evil in this world they will have rest from the hardships from the sickness from the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes The author of Hebrews wrote, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his, Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 10. A rest we can only find in Jesus Christ, who will one day say to us as believers, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Well done, well done, good and faithful servant. How does Jesus know that we're a good and faithful servant? Because our works follow us into heaven. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name by having served and by still serving the saints, Hebrews 6.10. Our works follow us. When we finish our race, when we've finished this fight, when we've kept the faith, and our struggle is over, we will be safely in the arms of Jesus Christ. And we will experience then a joy greater than any joy you could ever have on this earth. Amen? If you want to know that joy, if you want to know that peace, and that comfort, and that rest, it's as easy as A-B-C. A, admit that you're a sinner, that you've fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. So it's not our righteousness. It's only by the righteousness imputed to us by Jesus Christ. Because the Bible also tells us all have sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And you may believe that you're a good person. You may believe that you've done enough good things in your life for you to enter into heaven. And I've been, and I'm not going to pick on the Catholics here, but it happened in the Catholic Church, so i got to tell the truth. I have been at a Catholic funeral where I've heard the priest actually say, so-and-so did all of these good things. I know he's in heaven now. That's not how it works. Do you honestly want to put your faith, your eternal destination, in your good works? Do you want to stand before the spotless, sinless Lamb of God and tell him just how good you've been on this earth? I don't want to have to do that, and I thank God I don't have to do that because he paid that price for me. The next step is believe. Believe in your heart. Believe that Jesus is Lord and that he died for your sins and that he rose from the grave to come again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said, on the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And as I stated before with the Philippian jailer, When he asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And their response was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the answer. It's not works. It's not being a good person. The answer is believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul wrote, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Romans 10 Verses 10 through 11. Once you admit that you're a sinner, once you've turned from that sin and turned to Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that you're going to live a life perfect, free from sin, from now until you meet Jesus in heaven. That's not what it means. It means that you're going to begin a journey, a journey of becoming more like Jesus Christ in your walk, a journey called sanctification. It means that you will now have eternal life because you've given your heart and soul and mind and your whole being to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so when you leave this earth, you will gaze on the face of Jesus, and you will hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you believe this? And if you do, the only thing left to do at that point is to call upon the name of Jesus. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, guess what? You will be saved. Listen, there is no, I know a lot of churches love to have altar calls. I know that they do. I know that people love to see other people come forward to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. I've read the Bible a few times. I can't find that in there. Jesus says, if you profess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But you don't have to be in the church to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You could be driving down the street right now and just pull over. And just cry out to the Lord. Call upon his name and you will be saved. Don't think you have to go to a church to be saved. You can get saved by kneeling right at the side of your bed. You can get saved by sitting at your kitchen table. All you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And with your heart, believe that Jesus died for your sins. With your heart, that's the difference. Not in your mind, but with your heart. Believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And as we always say... We might see you here one day, or we'll see you in the air. Either way, welcome to the family of Christ. Amen.